Welcome to the Chronically Courageous Podcast. I'm your host, Bonnie Howard. Since I was a child, I've had chronic pain, yet was told time and time again that it was all in my head. So I pushed through my symptoms and I built a successful career until I found myself crouched on the floor of my office, barely conscious. After finally getting a diagnosis, I had to learn how to embrace the life I've been given as fully and happily as possible. Now, it's my mission to help you do the same. Join my guests and I each week for inspiring stories and tips on navigating the complexities of chronic illness. Together, I believe we can move forward with courage, passion, and purpose. Hello, everyone. This is Bonnie Howard, your host of The Chronically Courageous. I wanted to come on and acknowledge that I did not release an episode last week, and that was done intentionally. In my heart, it did not feel right to me to do that in light of the tragic murder of George Floyd and all of the protests that were going on in the United States and around the world. I felt like it would be more appropriate for me to reach out to my dear friend, who is the president of the NAACP in Fairbanks, Alaska, and request that he come on the show. He's been very busy with everything going on. I'm still trying to get him to come on and talk to us all and explain to us from his perspective how things are and what we can all do to promote more peace and equality and love in the world. That said, thank you for coming back this week and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Chronically Courageous Podcast. I'm your host, Bonnie Howard, and I am very excited to have with me today Jana Lopez. Jana is just a wonderful human being. I had the opportunity to meet her recently through a course that we took together, and we just kind of connected on that, and then later found out that we have more things in common. She is another chronic illness warrior, so was really excited to bring her on and have her share her experience and her story, and she's, she's a great storyteller, by the way. She was a very successful magazine publisher for nearly a decade, and then a communications consultant for about 25 years where she consulted with multi-million dollar companies to help them tell their stories and create successful marketing. Jana is also a public speaker, and I've heard her do that too, and she's wonderful and made me cry when I heard her public speaking on her story of multiple sclerosis, which you'll hear today. Jana recently, very recently actually, so now it is May of 2020, and in January of 2020, Jana released her first book called Me, My Selfie, and I, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And she also recently released a podcast called Identity, spelled E-I-E-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y, where she talks about midlife identity crisis and the, the process that we go through as we get into our 40s and 50s and beyond. Jana has a way of just viewing the world that is so beautiful. She actually recently started another Facebook group that I've joined called My Mundane. And it's really, I believe, and if Correct me if I'm wrong, Jana, but I believe the purpose of the group is really to 
look at all of the things that we may otherwise miss in the world that are just the little simple things. And with everything going on with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think it's so easy to get caught up in the drama of the news and the politics and the divisiveness on wearing a mask and not wearing a mask and all of those things. And my mundane is just bringing it back to the basics and looking at the beauty of nature and the little things in the world beyond nature. I mean, so with that, it's my pleasure to welcome Jana Lopez to the show. Thank you so much for being here today, Jana. I'm so excited to be here, Bonnie. You've done an amazing job with your podcast. People are going to be inspired and connected and clearer about all of the ins and outs of just trying to make it through our days sometimes, but with newfound inspiration because of what you're providing, thank I you. think. That makes everything that I'm doing worthwhile when I hear that from people like yourself. So thank you for saying that. If we could just start by talking about how you came to find out that you had MS. Yeah, it's an interesting story because I, most people that have chronic conditions of, of any kind usually just learn how to live with things and bump along and um, I, I was just tired all the time and I didn't know, I thought it was depression because I was going through some things and I also thought maybe it was my hormones mm. that maybe I was going through menopause or something, but I used to want to go to sleep like at four o'clock in the afternoon. I was, I was more than ready for bed and my husband used to make fun of me sort of joke about it. And when people wanted to go out and do things or go to parties or meet for drinks or go to, I mean, I just didn't have any energy. I was tired mm -hmm. a lot and I just chalked it up to depression and menopause. And then in February, it was Valentine's Day, actually. I was at a conference in Vancouver, BC, and I uh, had been hanging out with a friend of mine and I, we, we just, we had a good time and everything. And I was just tired that day. I just felt off. You know, you can say to somebody, I felt off, but they don't really always know what that means, but you know what that means. You just don't feel mm -hmm. right. The next morning I woke up and was feeling really out of sorts. And I took, I was on the 28th floor and I was in the elevator going down and I started to speak. And all of a sudden I was slurring my words. Like I was drunk. I I was just, my words were coming out all mangled and I was a little embarrassed. Like I thought, crap, what's that? I didn't really know what was going on. I was embarrassed. I thought maybe she thought I had partied all night or something, <laughs> but I just couldn't get my words straight. That's the only way I can describe it. And I, so I was feeling off, my words were slurred and then the slurring started getting really noticeable and pronounced. And I got a little bit nervous I slogged through the day and then I was flying home the next day. And when I got home, I said to my husband, Mark, I was like, do I sound like I'm slurring my words? I thought maybe I was crazy. And he's like, oh, no, you definitely don't sound like yourself. So some friends of mine were going to come over for dinner and I just felt so tired and out of it and fatigue. I mean, that's a great word that is overused, but people that haven't understand everything that that means my, my friend's a nurse. And I said, look, this is what I've been going through. Can we take a rain check on dinner? And she said, I, I think you're having a stroke. You know, you're probably having a stroke or something. You should go to the emergency room and do that now. <laughs> it's like, oh God, there's a three hour wait. And I was tired and I didn't feel good. And my, by then I would say like the last three days or four days, my left arm was numb. My left leg was numb. I was starting to feel the neuropathy. So I 
in the emergency room uh, or at the doctor, he's like, I think you should go get an MRI. We think you're having a stroke. He did all the tests and I had pronounced weakness on my entire left side and my blood pressure was high. And so we went to the other part of the emergency room and I got an MRI and I was really tired at this point and they came in and they're like, you have MS. And I was sure that I was high or dreaming right. or something because I was convinced I was having a stroke. It's like going in to get your toe operated on and being told you're growing a third eye. I mean, it was completely made no sense and didn't compute. And I just, I think the shock of that, it just took a long time. And I almost didn't believe it. They recommended that I go see a neurologist on Monday. And so that whole Sunday, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't let anybody know. I, I think I just didn't believe it. So that's how I found out was just because I was convinced and thought and felt like I was having right. a stroke. It's like those, those stages of grief. And I know grief is something you touch on in your book and the first stage of grief being denial. So it's that, that not wanting right. to believe that it's true. So then you did see a neurologist and tell me what happened then. His name is Dr. Zarelli and he's with Kaiser and he was super kind and he showed me the MRI. And I think that's when I broke down and cried because I didn't know a lot about MS. I think MS is one of those diseases like so many that, especially with acronyms, I'm like, is this the one that Jerry Lewis telethon says, you know, MS? You yeah. know, I was like, you know, you just don't know. And I think we get too used to hearing the initials mm -hmm. of things and in the medical world. And unless it's a disease that impacts us, we know nothing about it. And I was surprised by how little I did know about it. And so he showed me the lesions on my brain. And in that moment, I just felt like I wanted to reach into my brain and scratch. Mm. <laughs> Something really weird about feeling that there's these pieces of your brain that you don't have any control over that are affected and to see it in an MRI. It was a very uh, surreal experience, but he explained to me more the breadth and scope of what I was dealing with. And the good news, I mean, the most amazing news is that at 51 to be diagnosed, it's a much easier possible path than being diagnosed at 21 mm -hmm. or 31 even. And people that are my age don't get diagnosed often. In fact, it's right. very rare. I was surprised when I found out that your diagnosis was so recent. Yeah, it, it's not common, but that means that you have a slower immune system. So yeah, I have a slower immune system. In, th in this case, it works in my favor. And I did not have any lesions on my spine, which was also a major, complete, lucky dodging a bullet because that is when things can get really super complicated. So I think I've got the good end of a crap stick. You know, I think right. I got lucky in that. It, it could have been a lot sure. worse. I mean, it's never a good thing to have, but I always am grateful for the things that might have it, it could have been just knowing what I know about MS right now. and I love I love your outlook on that it's so true that when we go through these things and we get these kinds of serious diagnoses it's so important for us to look at what what's good in the situation and to look for the gifts in it all because I believe that there really are there are gifts let's let's talk about that what do you think have been the gifts in getting this diagnosis how has it changed you what I was amazed is that 
people were so kind and they came forward and I got people that brought me like flowers and cards. And I think the gift was just being so surprised at how kind people are during really difficult circumstances. That was a huge gift. I never would have seen that had I not gone through a diagnosis. So that was very heartwarming and affirming and lovely and surprising. That's great. So one of the big things that you talk about on your podcast and in your book is identity. So how ironic that here, you know, you got this diagnosis that has the potential to really change how you view the world and yourself and um, your place in the world. So how has it affected your identity and how you see yourself? Um, It's interesting. That's a great question because I felt like I had was done with my book. I had reached a point in my book that it was a final done draft and I was ready to get it together and published. And I I had this tidy ending and everything, which I so wanted. And then I got this diagnosis like two months later. And the way I describe it, it was like an ugly jacket in my closet that I was being forced to wear that Mm, I didn't want That's a great analogy. Yeah. I I didn't want it. I didn't want the ribbons. I didn't want the posters. I didn't want the pity. I didn't want the relays, the 5Ks. I didn't want to be in that club. And it's like once you get a diagnosis of some form like that, you're automatically elevated into this group or this club. And uh, I didn't want it. So I think I, I was a little resentful for a minute. But then I got in touch with the National MS Society, the Oregon chapter, and they were so helpful and kind and have so much information about the research and the resources Mm -hmm. that are available. I think it did a lot about my identity because it was the one disease with most diseases, I should say, you know, there's not any one disease, but for me, it was the Wild West with MS, you don't exactly know how it's going to impact you. You don't know where the neurology of it is going to go or how bad it's going to get. And since I didn't know anything about MS in general, <laughs> I think I all the worst things like, am I going to be in a wheelchair? Am I going to be a vegetable? The only person I knew that had MS I, was somebody I went to high school with and he is mm. not in good shape. So you think, is this going to be part of my story that I didn't really imagine or anticipate. And so I think sometimes when things happen in our lives that transpire that are deep and dark and completely unlike what we imagine, it's trying to integrate a picture of what that story is going to mean for us. So I think for me and my identity, I thought I thought I had it, you know, I thought I had reached a place in my life where I had gone through some things and I was at a stabilized place and then nope, yeah, you know, got sure you enough. again. Huh? <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> Just when right. you think, exactly. right? You know, that's and then I thought, well, this is really life. Yeah, this right. is it. Right. I, I get it. It's not it's not an easy um, you know, when you realize that you have something that's not necessarily gonna go away and it's gonna have uh impact you all the days of your life, um, some more than others. It's uh, and and the unpredictability, which I think is so such a common thread with so many different chronic illnesses. We just don't know from day to day really how 
how we're going to feel, how we're going to function, if our words are going to come out right, if our brain is going to function properly, if we're going to be able to get out of bed or not. It's it's that it's the unknown. And it's kind of like right now, I think the world is going through that unknown with the COVID-19 pandemic. And where are we going to be tomorrow? And how's the world going to look? And is it safe to go grocery shopping? And all of these you know, same questions that we as people with chronic illness have kind of lived for, you know, however long, you know, in your case, a couple of years, in my case, most of my life, although I wasn't diagnosed until also, you know, somewhat recently, five or six years ago. I mean, obviously, it takes it takes its toll on you mentally and physically. What kinds of things have you done to keep yourself on a path that's, you know, positive and feeling okay about where you are in life? Well, I think the fact that a couple of things, and that's also a great question. Luckily, because of my situation with my work stuff, I I was able to apply for and get Oregon Health Plan just two oh. weeks before this happened. Like it was it was an angel of grace of yes. God or whatever that I had gotten on the Oregon Health Plan like just two weeks before. And the woman who helped me she was so patient and we had reached this like stuck sticking point, but she spent two and a half hours with me on the phone to get me onto the Oregon health plan. Now she could have just done her job and said, sorry, and blah, 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 and gone on her way. And then I, you know, this would have happened. But when I got diagnosed and I had gotten on the Oregon health plan, I tracked health and I said, look, I need to know her first name. And I sent her a card and I said, I want you to know what your time and what your kindness did for me. Because it was so amazing and I wanted her to know that she mattered because of how she helped me that day. Because oftentimes they don't know and the cost alone of treatment is like $17,000 a treatment for what the treatment that I needed and um, I wouldn't have had the healthcare coverage. So it meant a lot to me to find her and say, thank you. And this is what you did. Mm. So that was like the first thing. And then the treatment they prescribed was actually, I think MS treatments come a long way in even the last 10 years. And they Mm -hmm. put me on uh, the six month, every six month Rituxan. Yes. It's a drug they give for rheumatoid arthritis and also in tandem with chemo therapy for people that have leukemia that suppresses the immunity. And it's like a nine hour, eight hour infusion. I feel like that was a good treatment option for me. My doctor was really convinced that he had seen some amazing promise. And he said that would be the treatment he'd give his mother or his children. So I knew I felt Mm. he was confident. And uh, so I got the treatment of Rituxan. And then that was in March was my first treatment. And then, you know, I started reading about the Walls protocol. Dr. Terry Walls, she is a She has MS and is a researcher and did this whole pretty integrated, thoughtful, high-level protocol, which is a dietary. Uh, So she basically nursed herself back to health with nutrition. It's pretty strict. I, I would say I've integrated some of it, but what that meant for me in terms of taking care of myself is every day I do greens. (laughs) which (laughs) was not something I wanted to do, but, you know, I put in the chard and the lettuce and the spinach and the parsley, you know, try to throw in a banana so I can get it down. But, um, and then I had to start taking certain vitamins that, you know, supplements that would keep me, keep my immunity still down because you can't like boost your immunity. But 
got, kept my energy up. What, what are those? Would you mind sharing what those supplements yeah, are? I, th- I had to take a lot of vitamin D. I was super low on mm-hmm. vitamin D, vitamin A, turmeric, uh, cranberry, because I didn't want any urinary infections because my immunity was low, fish oil, probiotics, and mm-hmm. oh, the one supplement, which is like, don't be jealous, but it's called Oregon Delight. And because <laughs> <laughs> the Walls Protocol really talks about eating livers and hearts and stuff, and I can't eat meat, I don't like it. So I, I found these supplements that are hearts and livers and intestines ground up and they're in pills and they're all organic or whatever, but they're mm. called Oregon Delight. So I take five of those a day. So that I think that pretty much covers it. And I feel that's really good information. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, a lot of us don't like to eat meat. I don't eat meat. So but I know there are certain, you know, medical benefits of it. So I will look to Oregon Delight if I decide yeah, to go that route. <laughs> it's Dr. Ross, I think it is. I'll send you the link. I, I was, you know, skeptical at first, but then I started reading about all the properties when I got started reading the, the Walls Protocol, you know, c- cutting out gluten and cutting out mm. dairy are the first two things that they suggest. And I've cut out most gluten and most dairy. I mean, I'm not, but I still, I'm not going to be, you know, I don't, I don't envision that life of not any of it. I mean, my health didn't dictate it. I was actually okay enough that I could get away with still having a little bit, but eating, you know, incorporating the greens. I think it's more important what you put in. It's also important what you take out, but concentrating on what I put in was more important and more easily accessible for me than what I was taking out. Mm-hmm. So I started adding the greens every day I do it and eat and then do those, su- the Oregon Delight supplements because that's the way I will get all the iron and everything else they say that you need. That's great. What, so what do you do? You know, that's kind of the physical side of it. What do you do to handle the emotional aspects of it? Well, I did get involved with the, the MS Society that, so interestingly enough, I have a friend her name is Jana Wells, and she's an auctioneer, and she's amazing. She does all the local charity auctions. Uh, she leads them, the, the auction portion, and she's super great. And the, the Oregon chapter of the MS Society had called her to do theirs. And so she knew from my story that I had MS, and she, knew, she knows my storytelling and the way I sort of show up. And she asked me if I would be the MC for the event. I was like, sure, I'd love to. So I think staying engaged and trying to help others understand that it's just not two initials. Like I don't want to be the one crusading now, the poster child for MS. There are plenty of people out there who are doing amazing things that are the spokespeople. And I, I didn't want to aspire to be that, but I feel like educating people every day who I come across if they ask or if they want to know more, that is part of the emotional healing, I think, for people who have chronic illness is to help others understand a little more because it can be such a um, unknown terrain for so many. Right. The other thing I think I try and do is uh, through the writing, through the book, through the conversations, through the things that bring meaning to me, I just try to keep those things going and alive. Yeah, sense of purpose is is huge in all this, I think. And that's, that's definitely, that's why I'm doing this podcast, because I feel like when I lost my career, I also lost my sense of purpose. And, you know, there's other things I have in my life, but yeah, but having 
those those creative outlets, I think, is so healing and so helpful. And sharing your story, I, I agree, is incredibly healing. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you're here sharing your story today. <laughs> what would you say, like, I know you were, you were very, it sounds like you were very much of a go-getter and hard driving kind of, you know, in the corporate world, doing your, um, your magazine publication and your consulting. And that's, that's a fast paced world. I've been in it with the, you know, marketing and things. So what would you going back, you know, 20 years or so, what would you tell your younger self now, knowing what you now know about where your life is? See, 20 years ago, uh, I'm 53. I just turned 53. So I would have been 33. I would probably say that you're going to accomplish some amazing things. And you're going to discover some amazing things. And you have no idea that the first 20 years that you're about to experience will just be all learning and getting you ready for the most next best amazing chapter of your life. Because I think that it's just now starting to get interesting and good and because of because of covid and in spite of covid and just part of where i was and was ready and i know so many people are really struggling right now and i empathize and i feel it and i get it and i almost feel a little guilty when i say that the last 6 weeks has been the most emotionally productive and creatively expressive that i've had in so long that you know, I feel very inspired right now, even though things are really weird and dark in so many places, I feel very much alive and lit up and hoping that things will get easier and better. But I know it's going to be a bumpy road. Right. No, I, I, I completely understand and relate to that. It's, um, I don't know, I just think it is a really good opportunity to slow down and, and explore that creative side and, ex- and look within and not get so caught up in the day to day because we're not really able to the way we were before and run towards, you know, everything around us and, and ignore what's right in front of us and what's inside of us. So what, um, what advice would you give to others that are recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis or, or any other chronic illness for that matter? Give yourself the room and the permission and the allowance to be sad and grieve that things will change. I think people either want to rush through that whole thing and skip over it and just get on with the, here's my new reality but there's so many parts of yourself that will change. And to give that pause, it's due process because that is where we need to make our own room for ourselves. I mean, we're going to have people who support us. We'll have medical support. We'll have, we're going to have a list and litany of things to do and be and how to integrate. And that time that you just can take into account that your life will change is a very precious, volatile, personal time. And I think that that's an important time for you to just be with yourself. And I would also say that there's so much hope out there right now in the MS community, so many treatments. Things have come so far in the last 10 years. Treatments are easier, more accessible, more successful. People are living better, more quality lives, things are remit that your the relapses happen less and your symptoms show up less and things can get better and with diet and whatever works for you, but like the balls protocol, there's so much out there that you can do actively for yourself. And there are many people out there who are in a very vast spectrum of this journey and 
not to put yourself in the worst case scenario, because that's probably not likely. It could happen, but it's probably not likely that you will, you will be in that. So to have some hope is, goes a long way. Yes. Thank you. Those are wise words. And I know that my listeners are going to love hearing those things from you, especially um, kind of want to dedicate this episode to a cousin of mine who shall remain nameless, but she was diagnosed about a year, approximately a year ago with relapsing remitting, remitting MS. She's very excited to hear this episode. So thank you for those words. Oh, again, it gets, you know, the treatment thing, I can't emphasize that enough. It's come so far, and it is so much more effective, and people are Mm. really doing amazingly well in their lives because of it. That's wonderful. And I, and I think also there's, you know, there's a, there's definitely a mental component to it too. We can sit there and wallow in our, in our sadness and we have, and that's okay to do that. It's, it's a period of mourning for sure. But then there's that, those positive affirmations and, you know, and really, like you said, not looking at the worst case scenario, but rather maybe I'll be the best case scenario. And, you know, what can I do to take charge of, of this situation and put myself in a better position to live my best life? So, I, you know, going through all this, Jenna, it does take a certain amount of courage. And, you know, the name of my show is The Chronically Courageous. What would you define as courageous? Great question. I think just being honest to yourself takes so much courage. Um, I think we want to tell ourselves what we think we need to hear. I think we tell ourselves all the platitudes and they're just platitudes. If it doesn't land, if somebody says fake it till you make it, that means nothing to you. It's like, you know what? That doesn't even mean anything. My favorite platitude that I don't like is lean in. I don't even know what that means. You know, it's like asking me to do something. I don't know how to do. It makes no sense. So the expectation that you're supposed to follow some platitude that's going to be that's not courageous. That's, I mean, maybe it is for some people. I don't want to discredit people that follow platitudes and not every platitude is that way, but I'm saying for us, we tell ourselves we need to do something that we don't really feel in our heart. The courage comes from sitting with and being with and allowing and making room for the messiness of what is about to unfold. Mm. And it's messy and we don't have a tidy ending. We don't always know where it's going to go. And I think the courage comes from sitting in the uncertainty and courage comes from trusting that you will know how to navigate when the time comes that something is so drastic that you need to do something different. And courage comes with having self-love. I mean, that's a brave, brave thing to do is to give yourself that self-love in the honest way because you need to be your biggest cheerleader during these times that are pretty dark. And it's easy to say it's unfair. It's easy to say this sucks. It's easy to say, when does it end? And it takes a lot of courage to say, I don't know when it ends and I'm here for myself. That to me is courage. I love that answer so much. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I think that, you know, the self-love is a huge component and it's something that so many times we have to go through the process of learning. I know for me, I I didn't know what that was for so many years. And I think one thing, if I were to do like a study of all the chronic illness community, I think one thing that we, most of us have in common is that we are fixers and we want to be there and do for everybody else, but then we, we lose ourselves. And this kind of is the gift, I think, and part of it is it brings us back to ourselves and back to I'm important too. And I, I need to take care of me before I can take care of anybody else, or I'm not going to have that capability. 
And we, it's something we hear a lot. It's something we hear all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's overprescribed. But does what does that really mean? Like until you're ready to understand and explore and even self-love, two words I've heard my whole life. And I, is it going to get a massage? Is it, you know, no. Is it sitting and reading a magazine by the pool? Could be. You know, I think for everybody, it's different. It's a moment by moment thing. And it's up to us to have the courage to sit there and be willing to say, what what is it for me right now? And we are what we have. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, that's such a weird thing to think about. Like we're, we are what we have. And that takes a long time to really understand what that means. You know that I'm glad you said that because it reminds me when I was listening to the talk you gave to the MS Society in Oregon, you said something about we are uh, recognizing ourselves as who we are versus what we do which Mm -hmm. is so that that's been a huge growing thing for me. It's like, you really have to kind of look inside yourself and say, okay, without all of the, you know, the corporate accolades, who am I? What kind of a person am I in this world? Talk to me about that more. Like, what is your perspective on all that? It's an important one because the having a chronic disease or condition is part of that. But again, it's just a piece of who you are. It doesn't necessarily define you. And I think we're a society that the first thing you do when you go to a party, the question is always, what do you do? I mean, yes. without fail, pretty much 99%. So what do you do? And I'm, I mean, I part of the time I want to say, well, I, what do you do for a living? That's what they'll say. Oh, well, I breathe. <laughs> That's a start. <laughs> but um, I think we're conditioned to see ourselves through this lens of what we produce. There's a high measure of value and worth even to ourselves based on what we produce and outcomes. And without that, with when we strip away and we start to see that we're so much more, I know for a lot of people, especially now because they are not doing, it's a highly uncomfortable, disconcerting time because you're left to your own devices of being with yourself. And we are used to distracting. We bury ourselves in social media and cat videos and memes. And we've gotten so good at diverting and deflecting from those parts of ourselves that are probably so interesting and starving to just be seen and heard. And that's why I call that, that's the selfie part of me, my selfie and I. The me is the person you know yourself to be. The selfie is the person that you project and the I, E-Y-E, is who you come to see Mm. again. And so I think we, a a disease, a a condition, a a chronic condition, a diagnosis is also just one aspect of who we are. So it's not what you do, it's how, it's not, it's who you are. And that's a hard thing to come around also because of our social expectations and then the expectations we put on ourselves So I spent the four years working on that book because without what I did, I didn't know who I was. And I'm going to have to pick up a copy for sure, because (laughs) it's so funny that you talked about when you, you know, when you go to an event, the first thing people ask is always without a doubt, what do you do? And I think at first when I, when I got that question and I, you know, I was on, I was kind of filing for disability at the time and I was not no longer in the workplace. And I went with a friend of mine to, a corporate event. And, you know, I had that like thirst for like getting back into that environment and I missed it. And I, you know, I missed feeling a part of it. And inevitably people came up and they said, well, what do you do? It's the most uncomfortable question 
It really is. Yeah. You feel terrible. You feel like you just get to two inches tall when somebody, and you're like, uh, uh." (laughs) well, and it's like, okay, then there's what did I used to do versus what I do now. And I've gotten to the point now where I'm so much more comfortable because it's been approximately five years since I've been out of the workplace. And now, you know, now, of course, I can say I'm a podcaster. But beyond that, I can just say that I am I'm an advocate for people with chronic illness. I, you know, I say I'm, I'm currently on disability, I I have multiple conditions. And I found that my purpose in life is to support other people who have such conditions and to help them get the validation that I didn't get for over 40 years of my life. And I feel good about that answer. I mean, I'm also I'm a person who is a lover of life and of people. And I, you know, despite the fatigue and everything, I still I love to go out and dance and I love music and the arts and all of those things. I just I, you know, I love all those things. And you know, what we what we do for a living is such a small, small part of who we are. And it really, it's such a I think it's such an American way that, you know, people have of of def- I think it's I think in other countries it might be a little different, but I think the American culture is such that people really define people by what they do and what they have. And when we get diagnosed with a chronic illness and we're no longer able to work in some cases, we have to look inside and say, who, who are we really? Like what, you know, what else defines us? It can us? be pretty lonely and pretty isolating. And I think we spend a lot of time thinking about the would be's and could be's and I spent years you know, waking up and what the hell's wrong with you? I would tell myself because every day I used to get up, produce, do, get get stuff done. And when I was unable to do that and that was not in my life anymore, I, I was just a mess. I was on the floor. And so the part of the reason for the book was, one, I wanted people to recognize that what they were going through was unnamed grief. Mm. That when we lose those parts of ourselves, we are grieving heavy and we don't name it that. And uh, I wanted people to understand that if you lost a friend and you were grieving, you wouldn't say, what the hell's wrong with you? Get your act together. <laughs> you, know? you, wouldn't, you wouldn't talk to yourself the same way that you talk to people that are in grief. And you, when you go through those changes, your identity shift and you lose that, there's just nothing but grief, waves and waves, because that is what defined you. It's how you moved in the world. It was your purpose for getting up. It was what you did at the end of the day and what you thought about. And when all of that goes away, you don't have that pool of relation to the world anymore. So you're just suffering these ripples of loss. And it's too easy to get unkind to yourself and blame yourself when really it's just grief. So I did not want people to feel alone. I wanted them to understand what it was. And I named it, I called it the dark flight of the self is really the mourning process and the uh, identification of grief in your in your path and so um, giving it a name making room for it telling people you're not weird you're not crazy you're not alone uh, was why I put the book out why I wrote it was for me why I put it out was so people would know that they're not alone in this time right and I think it's it's fairly new to you and I went through that period too where I, I didn't I didn't know who I was I didn't know where I was going with my life, I kind of thought I was like washed up and all done. And I, you know, done all I was going to do in the world. But I think if we if we look deeper, we can find a deeper meaning and a deeper purpose. And, and I found that and honestly, like, for me right now, what I'm doing now is so much more meaningful than any corporate job I've ever had in my life. I mean, you know, second to raising my son, which I consider to be my my first most important thing in my life. You know, I believe that helping this community is 
is now my purpose. So, so Jana, looking at yourself now, what, how do you, like, if someone asks you that question now, what do you say? What's your answer when someone says, who are you? And I'm getting a little better. I mean, it still takes a little bit of a, ah, but, um, you know, I can't say I'm an author because the book is out. And I can say that I'm a podcaster because the podcast is out. I can say that uh, I'm a one life, you know, one-on-one coach. I coach for midlife transitions. And I also coach for writing for people that want to share their stories. Um, so that's a lot of answers, really. But how, how would I answer that? I would probably say that I am a uh, in communications. I probably keep it simple because maybe a lot of people in a, in a room networking, unless you've got something for them, they're already looking over your shoulder anyway. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And I think it's also just feeling a level of comfort with where you've arrived at this stage in your life and, and really telling it like it is and not really worrying what people are going to say or think about it. And you know, size you up because people are going to size you up no matter what. That's just, that's just culture. You know, <laughs> it's just, the, I kind of like the answer of maybe like a work in progress. Oh what yeah. Do you, you know, that could be an interesting answer. What do you do? Well, I don't know. I'm a work in progress. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. All right, Jana. So now I am going to go into the rapid fire section of the podcast. And this is where right. I give you a quick little sentence. And I just want you to fill in the blank using one word to one sentence. And, you know. Okay. Chronic illness has made me more. Aware. Mm-hmm. The one thing I wish healthy people would understand about chronic illness is. Fatigue is real. Yeah. Describe what it feels like to you, because I think so many people think, oh, yeah, I'm tired, too. But it's, it's, not, it's not like what people think. Picture a sandbag that weighs 100 pounds that has been sitting in a pool, soaking up every drop of water, and then being asked to swallow it and carry it around. Bam. That is a <laughs> <laughs> mic drop moment, as Oprah would say, right? <laughs> yeah, that's like, that is, a, that's why you're the artist. You're such a, uh, an artist with your words. That is a really great description. I like that. Yeah. I wish other people without chronic illness would. I wish people without chronic illness would have more compassion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The most valuable lesson that you've learned through this journey has been people are amazing. Hmm. I love that. People can be so kind. Yeah, it really is. It's, it is beautiful to see that, that side of people come out and, you know, and you mentioned before, you never want to be the, the poster child or like, you know, a place where people give pity. And I totally agree with that, but it is nice when people care and show kindness and love and, and, yeah, and take the time, like you said, to, to research and find out more about the condition. I think that's one of the most meaningful things that a person can do that cares about you to show that they truly care is to learn more about what you're actually experiencing and how it impacts your life. And the little things go a long way. Mm-hmm. The little kindnesses go a really long way when you're needing something or when you're tired or somebody who just thinks to drop off some scones or something that just says... I'm thinking about you. I've had quite a few people that have just done little things that have stuck with me and made me feel really loved and appreciated. Aww. And you're you're married, correct? I am. And my husband was very supportive through all this. Mm. In fact, I'm, you know what? I can add a really cool addendum to this yeah. whole story because it's really awesome. 
So my husband was at Intel for 25 years and got laid off about three years ago. And then he opened up his own handyman business. Prior to me, his wife that he was with passed away from cancer. So he was he had been through her whole ordeal. Hmm. But when I was getting my first treatment, it was in February, no, it was March. And I was looking at him and he was watching the nurse and I was watching him watch the infusion nurse and he was really studying her, putting in the needle and taking care of everything. And I don't know what happened, but it was like the clouds literally parted and I don't know. I was like, you got to be a nurse. I mean, it was just so clear. Like, you know, so when we were leaving, I said, you're not going to, you're going to think this is really weird. But when I was getting my infusion, I had this really clear vision that you should be a nurse. So we started thinking about it and talking about it. And he ended up starting nursing school that June. And in two months, he's going to graduate with his LPN. That's incredible. He's going to go on to be an RN and he wants to go into infusion nursing for oncology. I just got goosebumps. And that came from my treatment from MS. That was in that moment. That's incredible. Oh my God. See, that's one of those gifts that those unexpected gifts that we don't see, we don't know what's coming or like where this whole thing is going to lead. But then if you open up your eyes and you look around, you see, oh, how, how has your life changed, you know, in so many beautiful ways. And that's, that's one of them. That's incredible. So like you helped him find his true purpose. Right. And so that came from that specific moment of getting this infusion and from the MS and from everything else. And he's on a whole new path now. And I'm going to brag and say he got four A's his last term. Good job, hubby. I know. So Jana, tell us where we can find you and what kind of what things you're putting out there right now that we can learn from you and your book and all that. So the main hub for everything is janalopez.com, J-A-N-N-A-L-O-P-E-Z.com. And it has, you can buy my book on Amazon or Powell's or Barnes and Noble or anywhere, but it is available on Kindle, in audio and in print. And, but my website has the links for all that. And my podcast is called Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. And I'm going to have Bonnie on at some point too. So we will make sure to load that link. And Facebook group is called My Mundane, and that is just really a snapshot of life. Simple, basic, it's your coffee mugs, it's your kids, it's your dogs, it's your garden, it's whatever. It's just whatever simplified version of your life looks like, and it's a means to connect and ground us in the things that unite us right now during a really funky time. Instead of division, we've got something simple and lovely to connect us, which is why and the group has almost 810 people already. That's amazing. It's, it's such a great concept. And, I, you know, you invited me to it. And I, I, you know, I've gotten so many invites, so many different groups. And I'm like, which ones do I accept? And how can I contribute to all of them? But I went on there and I just started looking through and it was just, it was like this, ah, like a breath of fresh air. I mean, just, <laughs> it right? Really I mean, just so, just beautiful way to look at life and reframe everything that, you know, that's going on in the world and really kind of separate ourselves from that right now and just not even think about that, but rather think about the simple pleasures of life. There's been no division, no politics, no coronavirus, no nothing. I mean, and it's been great. Mm. And, you know, if it were to come up, I would, I would obviously do something about it, but I haven't had to. People are so into it. And I get messages all the time about how much they enjoy 
Well, I, I believe that it's the mundane that will save us right now yeah. because we need it. We need to know that we're connected to those things that ground us in our lives. And by mundane, I don't mean boring. I mean, simplified in our environments and our spaces and the things that make us happy that just make us happy for no other reason other than that they're there and they're ours. So we can revel in them. Yes. I think that's an awesome place to wrap it up. Beautiful words from a beautiful person. And I just am so grateful that you came on today. This is a wonderful conversation. And I know people are going to really, really enjoy hearing from you and then following up and looking more deeply into your podcast and your book and potentially get to hire you for public speaking engagements. You've just got so much to bring to the world and I'm just happy to be a part of it. I'm so glad. This is awesome. I'm so glad our paths made their way through this this vehicle because it, what you're doing is so needed and so lovely and so honest and so thoughtful and so engaging. And I just know that people are going to be really touched and inspired by this. So I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Jana. Thank you so much. Ah, sending you lots of love. It means the world to me that you took your time and energy to listen to this entire episode of The Chronically Courageous. If you know others that would benefit from listening, please share it with them. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your podcast player of choice. I welcome your feedback and questions. So please email me at bonnie at thechronicallycourageous.com. That's B-O-N-N-I at thechronicallycourageous.com. As always, I'm sending you so much love, happiness, and healing.